This is the haunted <coughs> demon coming back with another episode. <coughs> In today's episode, we will be discussing the murder of Kelly Ann Bates and also the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. But first, we'll continue with the murder of Kelly Ann ba- Kelly Ann. Kelly Ann (coughs) Kelly Ann Bates, 18th of May 1978 to 16th April 1996, was an English teenager who was murdered in Manchester at the age of 17 by her abuser, James Patterson. Smith, born circa 1948. She was tortured by him over a period of four weeks, including having her eyes gouged from their sockets up to three weeks before her death, before being drowned in a, in a bathtub. That's just kind of um, an, excer- an excerpt. <coughs> The murder inquiry was headed by Detective Sergeant Joseph Monaghan of Greater Manchester Police, who said, I have been in the police force for 15 years and have never seen a case as horrific as this. William Lawler, the pathologist who examined Bates' body, described her injuries as the worst he had seen on a murder victim. Smith, a misogynist, a misogynist with a history of violence and torture against former sexual partners, denied murdering Bates, but was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment on 19th of November 1997. <coughs> Background. James Smith was an unemployed divorcee living in the Gorton area of Manchester, described by acquaintances as house-proud and well-groomed. He was a teetotaler and non-smoker. His marriage has had ended after 10 years in 1980 because he was violent towards his wife. He then commenced an affair between 1980 and 1982 with 20-year-old Tina Watson, whom he used as a punch bag, even subjecting her to severe beatings while she was pregnant with his child. She said at first it was now and again just a little tap, but in the end it was every day. He would smack, smack me in the face or hit me over the head with an ashtray. He would kick me in the legs or between the legs Watson managed to escape from the relationship, during which Smith had also attempted to drown her while she was bathing. In 1982, Smith then began a relationship with 15-year-old Wendy Mottishead, who he also abused. In one attack, he held her head underwater in the kitchen, 
sink in an attempt to drown her. In 1993, Smith began grooming Kelly Bates when she was only 14 years old. Having met her while she was babysitting for friends, approximately two years later when she had left school, Bates moved in with Smith at his home in Furnival Road, Gorton. She had concealed the relationship from her parents, Tommy and Margaret Bates. Bates' mother said of her first meeting with Smith, after the two began living together, As soon as I saw Smith, the hairs on the back of my neck went up. I tried everything I could to get Kellyanne away from him. Although she had left Smith briefly because of arguments with him, she was once more living with him at Furnival Road by the end of November 1995. Her parents noticed bruises on her, which she explained away as being the results of accidents. She became increasingly withdrawn and in December 1995 resigned from her part-time job. In March 1996, her parents received cards purportedly from her for their anniversary and birthday, but only Smith had written in them. When Bates' brother tried to see her at the house, Smith said she was not at home. When a concerned neighbour asked after her, she was briefly briefly shown at an upstairs window. Murder On the 16th of April 1996, Smith reported to authorities that he had accidentally killed his girlfriend during an argument in a bath in a bathtub, claiming that she had inhaled water and died following his attempts at resuscitation. He also claimed that she often pretended to be unconscious. Police went to Smith's address and found Bates' naked body in a bedroom. Her blood was found throughout the house and a post-mortem examination revealed over 150 separate injuries on her body. During the last month of her life, she had been kept bound, sometimes tied by her hair to a radiator or furniture, or by her neck, by way of ligature. William Laura, the home office pathologist who examined her body, said, In my career, I have examined almost 600 victims of homicide, but I have never come across injuries so extensive. The following injuries were found on Bates' body. Now, this is pretty gruesome, so... Listener... So, for those of you listening, if you don't want to hear this, then please, you know, turn away for a minute or so. So, scolding to her buttocks and left leg, 
burns on her thigh caused by the application of a hot iron, a fractured arm, multiple stab wounds caused by knives, forks and scissors, stab wounds inside her mouth, crush injuries to both hands, mutilation of her of her ears, nose, eyebrows, mouth, lips and genita- genitalia. Wounds caused by a spade and a pruning shears, both eyes gouged out, later stab wounds to the empty eye sockets and partial scalping. The pathologist determined that her eyes had been removed not less than five days and not more than three weeks before her death. She had been starved and having lost around 20 kilos in weight and had not received water for several days before her death. Peter Openshaw, the prosecutor in Smith's trial, said it was as if he deliberately disfigured her, causing her the utmost pain, distress and degradation. The injuries were not the result of one sudden eruption of violence. They must have been caused over a longer period and were so extensive and so terrible that the defendant must have deliberately and systematically tortured the girl. The cause of death was drowning, immediately prior to which she had been beaten, about the head with a shower head. Openshaw said that her death must have been a merciful end to her torment. Trial. Smith denied Burner, as often with all of these cases, (coughs) with the supposed... Well, not supposed, the perpetrator, perpetrator who did it, <coughs> sorry about that, taking um, a drink, um, yeah, so... At the trial, as all criminals do in these sorts of cases, they all try and deny. They all think that they are more clever than the police. You know, thinking that they'll never get found out. So, without a question, he denied murder. And claimed Bates and claimed Bates would put me through hell, winding me up. Whenever it comes to violence from a, from a man to a woman, they always use that that excuse. But anyway, he also claimed that Bates had taunted him about his dead mother and had a bad habit of hurting herself. (coughs) And that part being in commas, in inverted commas. Another excuse to make it look worse on me. 
When asked to explain why he had blinded, stabbed, and battered Boots, he said she had dared him to do it, challenging him to do her harm. Julian Meze, a consultant psychiatrist, psychiatrist, told the court that Smith had a severe paranoid disorder with morbid jealousy and lived in a distorted reality. The jury at Manchester Crown Court took one hour to find 49-year-old Smith guilty of Bates' murder, sentencing him to life imprisonment. The judge, Mr Justice Sachs, recommended that Smith serve a minimum term of 20 years. He he stated, this has been a terrible case, a catalogue of depravity by one human being upon another. You are a highly dangerous person. You are an abuser of women, and I intend, so far as it is in my power, that you will abuse no more. The jury was provided with professional counselling to help them deal with the distress of seeing the photographs of Bates' injuries and the sickening violence of the case. So that was the unfortunate murder of Kelly and Bates. Now we will go on to the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. Dorothy Jane Jane Scott disappeared on May 28, 1980 in Anaheim, California. She had driven two co-workers to the hospital after one had been bitten by a spider. While they were waiting for a prescription to be filled, Scott went to get her car to bring it around to meet them. Her car approached them, but it sped away. Neither neither could see who was driving as its headlights had blinded them. They reported her missing a couple of hours later. After not hearing from her in the preceding months, Scott had been receiving anonymous phone calls from a man who had reportedly been stalking her, which, as we know, <coughs> is pretty, pretty is dangerous in itself. But also, if you are a single woman, let's say, and you get these creepy, these creepy phone calls. It's not very nice, and you know, unfortunately, you know these thi- these things can go unnoticed if are not reported properly. He had threatened to get her alone and cut her up into bits, so no one will ever find her. In June 1980, a man called the Orange County Register, a local newspaper that had published a story on the disappearance and claimed he had killed Scott. 
Police believe that the caller was Scott's killer from 1980 to 1984. Scott's mother, Vera, also received phone calls from a man who claimed that he had Scott or had killed her. The phone calls could not be traced as the man did not stay on the line long enough. In August 1984, parcel remains were found and identified as Scott's. <clears throat> no arrests have ever been made in her case. <clears throat> Victim. Scott was a single mother living in Stanton, California with her, with her aunt and four-year-old son. She was a secretary for two jointly owned Anaheim, California stores, one that sold psychedelic items, i.e. love beads, lava lamps, and the other, a head shop. Co-workers and friends said she preferred, she preferred staying at home, was a devout Christian, and did not drink or do drugs. Her parents, who lived in Anaheim, babysat their grandson while Scott worked. Scott's father, Jacob, said his daughter may have dated on occasion, but had no steady boyfriend that the family knew of. So, she was a devout Christian, a well-loved woman, very caring. I imagine, like, obviously, we don't know <coughs> our full um, her full background. We, I'm only do. I'm only going off of what I found. So I'm just trying to, you know, imagine what she'd be like. So you know, a very devout Christian. She didn't drink or do drugs. She was working. You know, bringing up a bringing up a four year old son. You know, doing the best she could, and unfortunately, and I don't know much about the crimes that went on in America, but I'd say that probably a percentage of crimes against women are probably cases similar similar to this. So, uh, but anyway, I'm just sharing my two, my two cents on this. Prior to abduction and murder, <clears throat> months before her abduction, Scott had been receiving anonymous phone calls at work from an unidentified male. She told her mother she recognised the voice, but could not remember the man's name. The caller alternatively told Scott of his of his love and devotion and also threatened to kill her. The man also said that he had been stalking her and provided accurate details of her day-to-day life to prove it. Scott's mother recounted, One day he called and said to go outside because he had something for her. She went out and there was a single dead rose on the windshield of her car. Scott's mother said, one call especially horrified her daughter. 
the man reportedly told Scott he would get her alone and cut her up into bits so no one would ever find her. Because of the calls, Dorothy considered buying a handgun. About a week before her disappearance, she began taking karate lessons. <coughs> disappearance and murder. At 9pm on May 28th, 1980, Scott was at an employee meeting at work. She noted co-worker Conrad Boston did not look well and had a red mark on his arm. She had another co-worker, Pam Head, left left the employee meeting to take Bostrom to the emergency room ER at UC Irvine Medical Medical Centre. Scott then changed her black scarf to a red one and stopped by her parents' house on the way to the hospital to check on her son. Medical personnel determined Bostrom Bostron, sorry, had suffered a black widow spider bite and treated him. Head said she and Scott remained in the ER waiting room. At no time, Head said, did Scott leave her side. Bostron was discharged around 11pm and given a prescription. Scott offered to bring her car to the exit. She did not want Boston to walk too far in his condition. No one would. As he was still not feeling well, Head said Scott used the restroom briefly before heading out to the parking lot. Head and Boston filled his prescription and waited at the exit for Scott. When they did not see her after a few minutes, they went out to the ER's parking lot suddenly. They saw Scott's car speeding toward them. Its headlights blinded them so they could not see who was behind the wheel. They waved their arms to try to get Scott's attention, but the car sped past them and took a sharp right turn out of the out of the parking lot. Initially, both thought Scott had an emergency come up with her son. A few hours later, after not hearing from her, Head and Boston reported Scott missing. At about 4.30am on May 29th, Scott's car, a white 1973 Toyota station wagon, <coughs> was found burning in an alley about 10 miles, 16 kilometres from the, from the hospital. Neither she nor her supposed kidnapper were anywhere nearby. Discovery of remains. On August 6, 1984, a construction worker discovered dog and human bones side by side, about 30 feet, 10 meters, from Santa Ana Canyon Road. The bones were partly charred and authorities believed they had been there for two, for two years, as a bush fire had swept across the site in 1982. A turquoise ring and a, and watch were also found. Scott's mother said the watch had stopped at 12.30am 
on May 29, about an hour after Head and Bostron last saw Scott's vehicle. On August 14th, the bones were identified as Scott's by dental records. An autopsy could not determine the cause of death. A memorial service was held on August 22nd. Mysterious phone calls. About a week after Scott's disappearance, her parents received a phone call from an unidentified man who said, I've got her, and hung up. The same man called almost every Wednesday afternoon and said either that he had Dorothy or had killed her. The calls were usually brief and usually, usually occurred when Vera was home alone. In April 1984, the man called during the evening. Jacob Scott answered and the call stopped. After Scott's remains were, remains were found in August 1984, the family started receiving calls again. Police installed a voice recorder at the Scott residence. They were not able to trace the calls, however, because the man never stayed on the line long enough, a possible motivation in Scott's murder surfaced June 12, 1980. An unidentified man called the front desk at the Orange County Register. The paper had run a story that day about the case. A managing, a managing editor told police the man said I killed her I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. The editor also said the coroner knew Conrad Bostron had suffered from a spider bat the night of May 28th. He also knew that Scott had been wearing a red scarf. She had changed her black scarf to a red one. After the employee meeting, neither of these details had been published in the June 12th article. The caller also claimed Scott phoned him from the hospital that night. Pam Head disputed that, disputed that claim, saying she had been with Scott the entire time, as she had not made a phone call. Investigators believe the anonymous Caller was responsible for Scott's death. <clears throat> and unfortunately, from what I found, and I could be wrong, but apparently the killer has never been found. And the case is apparently still open so <clears throat> you know there's multiple there could be multiple suspects you know so those were the two stories real true stories for today's, today's episode.
again, this is the Haunted Demon. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Haunted Demon. Also, um, follow uh, follow our merch Instagram as well at the Haunted Demon merch. So yeah, that'll be it until the next time or the next episode. Sorry, we will see you then. See you later, guys. Have a nice weekend.